Welcome to the Advisor Arena Podcast with your hosts, Jamie Malm and Josh Watson. This show is designed to share ideas and help you gain insight from some of your most successful peers. We will discuss industry news, hot topics, and challenges you may face, as well as give you some possible solutions. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Advisor Arena Podcast. This is Jamie Malm. I'm your host, and I've got Josh on with us as normal. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you today, Jamie? I'm good. I am excited about our guest. We have Tom Duncan joining us today. Tom is the Senior Director of Advanced Consulting Group, which is a fancy title for he is the super smart guy we call when no one else knows the answer. So, Tom, welcome. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for the great introduction. (laughs) So, you're a JD, a CLU, a CHFC, you are the senior director, like I mentioned, of Advanced Consulting Group, which is a member of Nationwide. So they're a great partner for us. They're a great partner for our advisors, ultimately then for the consumers that are the end recipient of your wealth of knowledge. So we appreciate you spending some time with us today. We're excited to pick your brain a little bit. Happy to be here. It's great. To, great. Thanks for having me on. So I want to expand a little bit on what advanced consulting means, because our listeners may have different ideas about what that means. How would you describe what you do to somebody that asks? Sure. I mean, our, our group is, is small, but, but mighty the way I characterize it first, we're, we're about uh, 13 folks. Uh, all of us have uh, our law degree, save one, our, our long-term care specialist who, who, who is excellent. And we really support all of the products and the lines of distribution that nationwide uh, offer. So both pensions and life, and then I happen to be part of the, uh, the the IRA and annuity team, so and that's how we're divided up. We so we specialize, you know. So I I am, am part of that team that focuses in on you know doing planning with IRAs and annuities. We have another group that focuses in on you know the life insurance planning um, aspects, you know, estate planning and, and, and charitable giving and, and business succession planning and the like. And then as I said, we have a, a group that focuses in on the on the qualified plan. Uh, area all of all businesses that nationwide you know sells our products in and supports uh, and away advisors yeah oh so go ahead no go, go ahead. ahead i was just gonna say but you are working directly with financial advisors for the most part yeah absolutely we, we and, and their intermediary intermediaries like you so our um you know all of our distribution partners imos and then down to the financial advisor level we support so you can call us directly if you've got questions uh, for case consultations, because that, especially in the in the IRA and annuity business, that is the, the number one activity that we we uh, we undertake is working directly with advisors uh, and their distribution partners and answering those questions uh, from a planning perspective. So whether it's a that's a tax question or um, you know a, a how do we how do we think about uh, doing this uh, type of, uh, of thing? That's, that's really where we, we uh, specialize in, not necessarily in the product. That's what uh, you know, our distribution partners are for or the operational aspects are really those, those planning based questions and scenarios uh, are where we, uh, we, we really focus our, ourselves in on. Well, I know I have benefited from your wealth of knowledge and your team, Josh, what do you, if you have to think back to maybe some of the most recent questions you've got that you really needed the advanced consulting group for, or it was worth getting their input and, and making sure everybody is on the same page, what do you think you get asked the most about from advisors? 
I think right now with the inherited IRA rules changing, I get asked a lot about that. Um, so that's been a big topic recently. And then just, uh, let's say you've got a higher net worth client, you know, maybe our advisors, you know, kind of specialize in working, uh, with that main street type of client, maybe a million dollars less of net worth. So higher net worth clients, I get a lot of questions about some just advanced strategies that maybe they should consider, uh, when it comes to dealing with people like that. So those would be two, two examples of some things I've come across recently. I agree. I think there is a lot of confusion on, the change with inherited IRAs, it seemed pretty straightforward. Like, okay, you can't do it anymore, except you can <laughs> if you do it over 10 years, but only yeah. if the annuity company allows for it. And if it's non-qualified, then forget it. That The change is out the window. So Tom, where do you think most of the confusion, you know, months into this is still stemming from? Yeah. And we're, we're, I, I might even say years. I mean, it, it was December of 19 that this passed, so we're well into it now. And, and I, I would echo but what both of you guys have said about frequency of case consultation, the things that we're finding ourselves talking about the most right now, and really this has carried through, you know, since, since uh, last year about this time when, when, you know, the virus really came into focus is we're dealing with a lot of beneficial payout scenarios. I mean, unfortunately, owners are passing, owners of IRAs and owners of non-qualified annuities are passing away at what seems like uh, a greater frequency than we've experienced in the past and or people are, are doing that kind of beneficiary planning ahead of time, which is great, that they may not have done um, with as much uh, intent uh, as before. So we're, we're talking about those payout options both non-qualified and IRA, with uh, with a much greater frequency as to the number of case consultations than we had been, you know, experiencing. Well, I would say pre-pandemic, that's for sure. Uh, and just to highlight some of the things that, that you said specifically, Jamie, the key takeaway I would have for anyone is to say is that the Secure Act, which did put in place that that ten-year rule, I'll flesh that out in a second, though. Uh, what that means specifically for IRAs. That that Secure Act changes, though, did not have any impact on the inheritance rules for non-qualified annuities. Uh, and that is probably the single biggest takeaway that that uh, I ask everybody to think about when in, in an individual conversation or doing a, a presentation like this. What we know as the payout rules for non-spouse beneficiaries when they inherit a non-qualified deferred annuity are the same today as they were, you know, in 2019 and, you know, in, in in, in prior years. So, and that is, you know, they can take a lump sum, they can utilize the five-year rule, uh, or they can take life expectancy based payments within, which then takes the, you know, can either take the form of a, of a stretch, non-qualified annuity stretch or an annuitization. So those rules are still in place. And what I hope is that we can get more folks to, to, uh, to try to utilize those more tax efficient options, the, the, the non-qualified stretch of the annuitization versus taking a lump sum just because it'll help the families build more wealth over time. So we're, we spend a lot of time talking about that non-qualified stretch as a planning tool, both for the owners up front and you know, getting them to understand, hey, there is a more effective way for you to leave this annuity behind that to, than for your kids just to cash it all in once, once you pass. Um, and that, and that, option is that non-qualified uh, annuity stretch, uh, just taking those small payments out, you know, leaving the balance to grow tax deferred. Um, and um, so, and then, and or annuitization if they're looking for a lifetime guarantee for that beneficiary. So those, 
those are the situations. And then with the owners up front and then with the beneficiaries, if we happen to be able to you know, get a pretty thoughtful beneficiary who instead of just cashing it in as the knee-jerk reaction and, and thinking many times it's the only payout option that they have, that they'll be thoughtful about it and say, hey, maybe there's a better way. And then you know, one of our advisors can look to say, okay, maybe we can, we can stretch it um, either with the carrier that they've directly inherited if that's permitted or possibly doing an exchange of that beneficial contract to a new carrier and stretching it through that new policy. So the, that right there is probably the single biggest thing that we are talking about simply because there's so all that confusion that you did mention, Jamie, about, you know, whether the secure act applies to non-qualified annuities, which it, it does not. And, you know, getting everybody to that place to, 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 to understand that. And then, okay, then how do I apply it? What are those rules? So that certainly is the, the biggest one. Um, so I have a question, I have a question thing. that I want to dig yeah, into ahead. a little bit on yeah. that, because I think, in addition to the confusion surrounding the non-qualified stretch, I, I believe anyway, financial advisors tend to think, well, as long as everybody's on the same page and knowing that they can do this and the parents want to do that, and I've talked to them about it, it's done. But ultimately, when the parents pass or the owner of that policy passes, and let's say it is the children, they could they don't have to do that, even if it was the parents' wishes, right? It's they are the beneficiaries and they'll have the three options. What do you advise for people? What's the rock solid way to make sure their wishes get carried out on that? Yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that people um, could consider in that um, in that situation. And I, I want to start with a little bit of a negative because we've got to get everybody to a good place of understanding is that, you know, and we get this question a lot is that, people will think, okay, maybe I should have, I have a trust already, you know, they'll, they'll either have a trust or a trust will be in their will. that will spring to life. So I'll just name that trust as the beneficiary of my non-qual to control those assets, which is from a control perspective, which works, you know, which can work well. The issue that you have is when a trust is named as the beneficiary of a non-qualified deferred annuity, you do not have the ability to do a stretch or a, any sort of a lifetime annuitization over a beneficiary's life, you know, do a look through. That's not possible with non-qualified annuities, with trust as beneficiaries. Instead, the only real payout option for a sort of deferral that's, that is available when a trust is the beneficiary of a non-qualified deferred is the five-year rule. Mm -hmm. So you do sacrifice some, uh, some income tax efficiency for some distributional control with a trust as beneficiary. I so think there there's a ton of confusion, confusion surrounding that. When yeah. you start talking about see through trust, path through trust. I've seen it, I've heard them called different things, but then that creates yep. this whole other, you know, that that's the kind of thing I think where we always involve you to say, let's make sure we understand the type of trust, how it's being structured, what ultimately the end goal is, and what do you feel the top priority is? Is it control? Right. Is it the tax benefit? And for any of our financial advisors listening, that's exactly where Tom and his team can help because they're, that can get a little hairy. And I know sometimes we have consumers listening and this probably sounds like, what the heck, if you're a consumer listening to this. But I think the important thing to know is, you know, if you have a, a financial advisor that you trust and work with, hopefully they have somebody like Tom working on the back end that, you know, will ensure all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. So that's a great point. Yeah. So, it really is, uh, it's, a, it's an exercise in trade-off. So they want to, you know, get their other, you know, their tax and legal advisors involved in helping to make that decision, which is, which, which makes sense. You know, the distributional control of the trust versus the 
income tax efficiency of the stretch. There is a middle ground that could be that people could explore as well. Um, that you know some some uh, companies uh, have, nationwide is one of those, but there are others out there as well that have a, a payout restriction form that a, uh, the owner of, a, of an annuity can place on a on a beneficiary non-spouse really can't restrict a spouse with with one of those uh, administrative forms but you could restrict a non-spouse beneficiary to essentially enforce either a, a non-qualified stretch or an annuitization on that beneficiary and that becomes part of the contract um now it's still not as um complete as a trust i uh, got to be you know aware of that you know there's there you know the, the, the possibility exists for that beneficiary to name their own successor beneficiary and that sort of thing. So you've got to, there are still some drawbacks to that one, but if there is the thought at least that they're going to want to put a payout restriction on that beneficiary, so that at least the stretch in or the annuitization is there for the income tax efficiency, plus a little, you know, plus that control of this is the only payout option beneficiary that you get enforced by the insurance company, that can be a middle ground uh, option to, uh, to explore as well. So that's um, the, the trade-offs, in this space is really what people have to understand and you know work through with with all their advisors to see which ones they're they're most comfortable with. I bet we have some advisors that are listening that are thinking, oh yeah, I forgot about the restricted beneficiary form. Uh, there used to be more companies, it seems, that offered that, and Nationwide has always been a very consumer friendly company, in my opinion, and this is one of those things that makes it so consumer friendly. Ultimately, we're trying to serve the owner of the policy and make sure their wishes are known. And like you said, ultimately, is it ironclad? You know, you know this better than I, but if it's not a trust, it's my understanding the beneficiaries could fight that and say, you know, that's not what they'd have to fight it, though. At least if you're thinking I've got responsible adult children, if they know what my wishes are, they'll carry it out. If they know what the plan is, that restricted beneficiary form is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I would I would put this, you know, kind of divided into you know, three decision points, not thirds of what we see people do, but just kind of a couple of decision points is that, you know, if um, if this is a scenario where you've got a pretty complicated beneficiary arrangement or you want things to be paid out over multiple lives, that despite the the uh, the income tax efficiency that the stretch would give, that's probably a scenario where a trust makes the most sense and you just have to sacrifice the income tax efficiency. But if it's a scenario where it's just for one particular beneficiary, especially if they were thinking about annuitization so that there's that lifetime guarantee, that's where a, a, a beneficiary restriction form might make some, some sense. And then like you said, and we, this is really probably the majority of the scenarios that we, we end up con- consulting on. If it's a first family situation where the kids, um, are either good with money or at least trustworthy, and the um, the, the parents are ultimately it's it, it, it theirs because I passed away. Let them make their decision as long as they know about the stretch, but if, and and know about it, but decide to do something else. The parents are okay with that. You know, you can just you know you know do education and then leave it up to the beneficiaries to make their own decision. So those are the kind of three buckets that ends up being divided into if you think about it that way. Okay, good tip. Josh, I know you've been working with a lot of advisors recently on like current event marketing. What are hot topics out there? And I think because of some of these changes with the Secure Act, with maybe some limitations on tax efficient ways to, you know, pass on money, Roth conversions are a hot topic. What are you hearing from advisors on the topic of Roth conversions, Josh? 
hearing a lot about Roth conversions. Um, I'm in our tax rates right now. So tax rates are at all time lows. Uh, the market's been down a little bit. So in a lot of cases, it does make sense to convert to a Roth. So I get questions every day on what that looks like, who does it, how do they do it? Do I have to do it all at once? Can I spread it out? Um, so a lot of good questions on Roth conversions recently. And Tom, I, and I, I believe most people know enough to be dangerous about this topic. So <laughs> what are you hearing about yeah. this? What are, what are you seeing yeah. as some of the mistakes people are making with this? Sure. Well, I, I would echo what, what Josh said is that it's a, certainly a topic that's driving a lot of conversations. Uh, we're, do, I'm doing a lot of, uh, of, uh, you know, presentations uh, on this as well. You know, people are really, um, interested in the topic and, it, and it's all based on the assumption that they're, they are, they're expecting that income tax rates in general. And then if they decide to do it they're for them specifically are going to be higher in the future. So that, that really is where the, the interest is coming. My experience is not everybody who looks into it does it. Um, and the percentage might ultimately be pretty low because people still don't like to pay the taxes regardless of where they think mm-hmm. they'll be in the future. It's tough to, to pay those taxes now. Um, but some do. Uh, and I think Josh touched on it uh, a little bit. It, the strategy folks may want to consider is instead of doing a big one all at once, which would really, you know, pop your, um, you know, your uh, your marginal bracket pretty high, uh, depending on the size of the conversion, is maybe think about doing partial conversions over time, which essentially allow you to fill up the current income tax bracket you're in, but then don't do any more, to, you know, to jump yourself into that next one. That strategy seems to be getting the, the most attention and and the ones that I've seen people do, that's where they're implementing it is to do those smaller ones over the time for the next next couple of years uh, to, you know, to build up a, a, up a nice Roth IRA. One of the things though that I found is decision points that people can consider to help them evaluate whether this is, a, uh, is something that they would want to do or not is to look at it from a couple of uh, different uh, frames of reference. The first one is essentially who you're doing this for. Um, once you understand maybe, Hey, my tax rates are probably going to be, or tax rates are going to be higher in the future, but who am I really doing this for? Am I doing it for me, my own retirement income, or am I doing it for wealth transfer? And what I've found is that there's probably slightly more people who are thinking about doing this for wealth transfer reasons, you know, leaving it behind to the kids in a tax free way, uh, instead of their own retirement income, because what they've determined is that the IRA that they've got is likely to just to get left behind. They were just going to take their RMDs anyway and leave the balance growing. Uh, so why not consider doing, uh, you know, those, those partial Roth conversions over time? Um, because especially if the parents happen to be in a lower tax bracket than the kids would be, especially if the kids, you know, uh, have to take, would have to take that IRA out in a big lump sum, um, because of the, the secure act 10 year rule. Now it's in place. So that evaluation point, am I doing it for myself, for my own retirement income or wealth transfer can really help people, you know, narrow in on at least answering that threshold question. Why does this make sense for me? And then you do some tax rate analysis either with yourself or your kids to see if it, uh, if it might make some sense. So that, that one is, uh, has been helpful just to, as a way to think about for, for folks. And, and it would seem that that would be a natural progression of thinking about why are we doing this? But sometimes we just get stuck in this, what can we do to make sure we're not paying higher tax rates? And we forget to think about 
what ultimately is this bucket of money for? So such an important piece for advisors to make sure they know what the intent is of the consumer, but also for consumers to say, don't get so fixated on making sure you pay lower taxes now than in the future if they're going to go right. up that then focusing on what your intent really is of that money. So that's a really good point. Appreciate that. Yeah. And a couple of other evaluation points. Again, these are all the, the art of a Roth conversion. The science of the Roth conversion is, you know, crunching the numbers and seeing, you know, doing that analysis. So it's, it, this is both an art and a science. Um, planning scenario. Again, my own characterization for that, but um, a couple of other evaluation points to just, again, help people understand if this makes some sense for them. Answer that threshold question about higher rates in the future. I mean, that's really that, the, the most important. But the second one is understanding where the money is going to come from to pay the tax on the conversion. Um, the, the, the kind of the best practice to think about is using outside funds, funds that are not in the IRA. Right. to do that conversion, especially if someone's under age 59 and a half, because if they've got to cap the IRA itself to pay for the conversion, uh, pay, the, pay those taxes on the conversion, that distribution that they're taking to pay taxes is going to get hit with the, the 10%, you know, additional tax because of pre-59 and a half distribution. So, and, and even if they're over uh, 59 and a half, it still makes some sense to pay it with outside funds because you keep more of that IRA capital together to give you the, you know, the more possibility for that magic tax deferred compound growth to work for you. Um, and then the second is time frame is so really just to give yourself the opportunity, um, to through, you know, increased growth in the, what would now be the Roth IRA account balance value, you know, give yourself enough, enough years for that, uh, for that, for that growth to occur to make back the money that you're paying in taxes. So if the need for the money is within those, is within, you know, certainly five years because of some tax rules that we can look at in a second, but probably better more than seven to 10 years is just to, again, increasing the possibility through, you know, increased time of uh, potential for growth gives you that ability to, you know, make back that money that you paid in taxes. So those, those three evaluation points as long as well as who are understanding who we're doing it for can go a long way in helping folks evaluate whether or not, you know, the Roth conversion makes sense for them. And then they got to calculate, crunch the numbers to see if it, it you know, see where right. they're at, you know, based upon some protections for themselves. So you've said twice now, here's three valuation points to determine. And I love that because this is taking really complicated topics, especially as an advisor is trying to wrap their head around it and then communicate it to a consumer, I'm sure you see the message get muddled a little bit. So by boiling it down to here's three valuation points, let's make sure these make sense. If they do, or if we can choose one then that makes the most sense for our situation, um, then we do the calculation, then we crunch the numbers, then we get into the nitty gritty, but that's a really, that that's a key takeaway for me to make sure that advisors are focusing people remember in threes and anything more than that, yeah. you start to get the glazed over look. So good point. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, again, back to arts and art and science is that especially with this one, we got to answer those artful questions first. Um, and, and then do the science though with, because you can't do it without the calculations just to do the projections and see, okay, if we did it at this rate of return, does it make sense? You know, what, if we just did this amount this year, does it make sense? So you have to do both. But I found just this as a way to, as a place to start, starting with those artful questions, just it can, can be a, it can help them, you know, with the whole evaluation process. 
Well, I know certainly our conversations surrounding the topic of Roth conversions have spiked tremendously with the changes with the SECURE Act. And there's a lot of questions out there. Not everybody can contribute to a Roth, of course, but they can do mm-hmm. a conversion. Do you ever get asked about a backdoor Roth or a, a mega backdoor oh, yeah. Roth? <laughs> More the, the, the small one, the small backdoor versus the mega. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll distinguish between the two of them in, in a second, but the, it's the backdoor that certainly uh, and I would characterize that as the smaller, smaller amount, but has the has more media attention, and it certainly is. Is media attention drives a lot of the questions that advisors get from their clients, which you know then then they call us and, mm-hmm. and, and to talk about it. So the the backdoor Roth conversion is a way for folks who simply make too much money to be able to contribute to a Roth IRA, you know, write a check to make a, you know, to to, to fund a Roth IRA. It's a way for them to get a Roth IRA started, even though they make too much money to actually write that contribution check because they do a, a, uh, an after-tax, non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA and then convert that right away to a, um, to a Roth IRA. And the thinking is, is that with that, and it can be this way if, they, if there's you know, certain facts are met, is that that can essentially be a tax-free Roth conversion. Um, so that's kind of the premise. The issue with that though, and this is really where people can run into problems with that, is that um, their IRA accounts don't stand alone. Um, essentially the, the, the IRA, no matter how many accounts, um, the a particular individual, pre-tax IRAs accounts an individual would have, the IRS looks at them all at once. Mm-hmm. So even if someone were to do uh, uh, this this backdoor strategy, you know, create a brand new traditional IRA account, make that non-deductible contribution to it, and then right away do the do the uh, Roth conversion, if that person has other pre-tax IRAs, so traditionals and simples as well, all of those are aggregated together for the purposes of the contribution, and what the 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 code requires is that any time that you do a conversion, you have to take into account your entire universe of IRAs and find that ratio of after-tax contributions to your pre-tax amounts, you know, so that's, you know, your pre-tax contributions and the growth. And then you apply that ratio to any amount that's converted. So in somebody's mind, even though they've set up this non-deductible account that they're gonna do this backdoor Roth conversion in, and that one should be fully, tax-free, right? Because I'm just doing it in this account. Well, because of that, essentially that aggregation of all uh, IRAs together for, for conversion purposes, that's not going to be the case. And what can happen, and I've unfortunately seen this, is they'll get a big surprise. They'll see, oh, I had these other, I had these other pre-tax IRAs. And so my, what I thought would be a tax-free Roth conversion ends up being actually being taxable because we have to apply that, you know, that, that ratio of, of after-tax contributions and pre-tax amounts to the, any amount that we convert. That's called the pro rata rule. Um, and it is a, an important rule for anyone who is considering doing this backdoor Roth conversion to understand um, and make sure that they're, um, they, 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 they know that they're, if they've got other traditional IRAs, that this is not going to be as tax-free, this backdoor, as they think it will be. From an advisor's perspective, though, what this can be is a way to make sure 
that they understand the client's full IRA uh, perspective, you know, and it can and it help them with their, their comprehensive planning because to do this effectively, you know, the advisor needs to know what, uh, you know, how many, how many pre-tax IRAs you actually have so that we can effectively do the planning and find out what the converted amount will actually be. So just be careful with anybody that brings that backdoor idea to you um, because of this pro rata rule, you got to understand their total IRA universe to be able to do it right. That is some impressive knowledge right there. <laughs> I, I know the aggregation of IRAs pops up in more than one place, but I can tell you in all of the marketing that I see and all of the discussions of Roth conversion rarely does a pro rata rule or calculating the ratios ever come up. And this is where it's so important, where we coach our advisors that if you're really gonna get into doing some things like this, you've got to have an advanced consulting group. I am not a tax professional. I don't claim to be, nor should most of our financial advisors if they are not. And this is where you need somebody to say, here are the things that could surprise your clients, that surprises are never good when it comes to taxes. So. I love that you were able to just spin that off, you know, just you, you can tell you talk about it all the time and it's a common mistake. If advisors are thinking, yikes, I don't know that I feel really confident in talking through that. Does Nationwide have any marketing pieces, any support pieces for advisors on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a white paper where we talk, it, it goes over all of the, much of what we talked about here today on, on the Roth conversion stuff. I can send that over to you, Jamie, so you guys have that and can you have that for your advisors to work with. But I have an example in there about how the pro rata rule works Perfect. so that you know, folks can see it. Perfect. It's, it's an important one. Yeah. So if anybody's listening that wants that white paper, um, contact Josh or I. You can go to www.theadvisorarena.com. Our email, our phone number is right on there. Contact us, let us know. We'll get in touch with Tom and we'll get that for you. Tom, this has been excellent. You are such an excellent resource for us, which means our advisors are able to access your wealth of knowledge, which means the consumers we support are ultimately benefiting from you and your team. So thank you for all you do. We appreciate it so much. Jamie and Josh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It was fun. Uh, Hopefully we'll uh, be able to do it again soon. Thank you.